Hello, this is David Shirley from Irish Funds. So we continue our series of podcasts taken from the content that was presented at the Irish Funds online annual conference in May of this year. This episode is a panel discussion from Wednesday 19th of May and is entitled Generating Dividends Through Diversity and Inclusion. The discussion is moderated by Diane McFarlane of JP Morgan and features contributions from Stephen Hogan of Exigeny, Andrew Keating of CRH and Jane Stiles of the Diversity Project. I hope you enjoy this episode and check back soon for more great content. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome, and a huge thank you to for you all for, for joining us. Um, I'm Diane McFarlane. I'm delighted to be moderating a panel on the dividends that we think diversity and inclusion can yield. This is obviously a topic that is a key focus. All the press headlines are talking to it, and we wanted to put a panel together to try and talk to you in terms of what are those benefits and how do we realize it? Um, I'm joined by a very experienced panel. Um, I'm sure they will not be backward in sharing their views with you. Um, by way of quick introductions, we have Stephen Hogan. Uh, Stephen specializes in corporate responsibility and social impact. We have Andrew Keating, who joins us from CRH um, and is a member of their Global Inclusion and Diversity Council. And we've got Jane Stiles, who is a diversity project ambassador with a wealth of financial services information, both CEO, CIO roles, and how diversity has led to some of her successes there. Um, technology permitting, we are going to try and run a poll. So I am going to ask you. The that we are interested in is um, does your organization have a specific DNI strategy? Fairly simple question, answers yes or no, please. We'll give people 30 seconds just to do that if you can have that on screen. Whilst people are going through that, what we did want to do is start with definitions. So as we look at these important topics, diversity we feel re refers to who is at work, who is recruited, hired, promoted. Inclusion, a very important part of that, is how those people feel at work. And as we go through, we're gonna talk about both diversity and inclusion. There is literally no downside to having a diverse and inclusive workplace, but I'll ask the panel to talk you through some of their, some of their experiences. To give you a few stats, um, again, to really show those dividends do, do provide results. Higher representation of women in C-suite level positions gives you a 34% greater return to shareholders. Organizations with above average gender diversity, they outperform by 46 to 58%. Companies with a higher than average diversity have around a 19% higher innovation revenue. And the top quartile ethnic diverse firms outperform those in the fourth quartile by 36%. So not only are there benefits to employees of having a happy workforce, fostering innovation, there is financial success and financial benefits to it as well. But let me turn to the panel. Um, Stephen, perhaps if I start with you, obviously you have a lot of experience in this space. Can you share why DNI matters to you? what your personal commitment is. Yeah, thanks, Diane. Um, so look, I think there is a moral argument for diversity and inclusion. 
and I think there's an economic argument for it as well. And you've set out some of the stats relating to an economic argument. So if we start by thinking about the moral argument, I think for me, the moral argument is about equality. It's about fairness, and because this is genuinely the right thing to do. Um, I think there's no good reason why someone's personal characteristics or their circumstances should limit their career choices and their life chances. Um, but without a real focus on diversity and inclusion, that's what happens. So it's the same people getting the same opportunities. Uh, and as the saying goes, talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And really what we're talking about is that everyone should have the opportunity to go as far as their talent and their determination will take them. They won't all get to the same place. It's not about a quality of outcome, but everyone should get a fair chance to progress their career to follow their dreams but we know that's not often you know that's often not the case and people from certain backgrounds are overweighted in so many industries even in in sport um and this matters to me personally because it's my journey because i have my own inclusion story so my uh, my family's all from dublin uh my parents worked in uh shops and and factories my dad worked on the buses in dublin my mother was a was a waitress they both left school at 14 because they came from big families. That's just what they did. That's what was expected of uh, of people in in that time. And uh, I think that you know. So my frame of reference was you know was not about kind of fancy shiny offices and white collar professions. And I think that's important because when we're younger, we set expectations of what we'll be when we grow up, and they're framed by our environment. They're framed by who we know and and what we know. So I kind of I now know that I'm fortunate to be in the position I am and to have the career that I'm that I'm having because lots of people from a from a working class background don't get those kind of opportunities. No matter how clever, intelligent, talented they might be, they don't get those opportunities. But that that shouldn't be the case, you know, because from a business point of view, if you don't do this, if you're not a diverse and inclusive organisation, then you're actually denying your business the opportunity to access a massive talent pool, and that means that you don't always get the best people working for you. You get the same people working for you, and you know from from an economic point of view, you know you you picked some very you know pertinent stats about what it means for for businesses. We know that diverse businesses tend to perform better because they have diverse of thought, they have you know diversity of uh, of action, and businesses will actually be more reflective of the communities they serve, the clients they work with. People can relate to them, and increasingly now we think about you know um, younger people in the in the workforce. They want to join organisations that they can relate to, that have values that um, that, that they can buy into, uh, and that's an increasingly important differentiator for for companies. And so it will become a virtuous circle for those companies that are kind of doing the right thing that are employing people from a range of backgrounds, but not just employing them, you know, helping them to stay, to succeed, to grow. So um, from my point of view, there's, there's really a really, there's a very strong economic case for it. There's a very strong moral case because it's genuinely just the right thing for organizations to do, to give everybody the opportunity to progress as far as their talent and their determination will take them. Great, thank you, Stephen. And Andrew, if I can ask you the, the same question, and obviously as we were prepping for this, we talked a little bit around um, your children, for example, and back to Stephen's moral conversation, your son should not be treated any differently to your daughter. Um, perhaps you, would, you wouldn't mind sharing sort of personally your sense on this, and then obviously given your role on your diversity council, kind of how you're taking that. Sure, uh, yeah, and again, I mean, I'd agree with, with all of what Stephen has sort of said earlier in terms of the, 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 the need for inclusion and diversity, as well as my own personal commitment to it. You know, um, one of the main catalysts for that was a, a number of years ago, I was the, um, 
I was hosting a kind of a career discussion with a, with a range of colleagues when I was the CFO at Bank of Ireland. And one of the questions that I was asked um, at that session was highly uh, provocative. I'd say it was one of the best questions I've ever been asked, you know, person personally or professionally uh, uh, over my lifetime. And essentially, the, the colleague said to me, uh, they said, look, Andrew, you know, you've you've enjoyed, um, you know, uh, success in your career. You've achieved what you set out to achieve. Um, do you think you'd have been as successful if you were born a girl? And it was an incredible question to be asked, uh, one I hadn't sort of reflected on previously. And I had to uh, reflect on it over, over the course of the next couple of days. If I had been born as Andrea Keating rather than as Andrew Keating, would I have been as successful? Um, and having thought about that, I suppose, I could only come to one conclusion, which is that it's extremely unlikely in my assessment that I would have been able to achieve what I achieved, or at least achieve it in the time frame that I was able to achieve it. Um, had I been born as Andrea. And I suppose that, you know, that didn't sit comfortably with me. It particularly didn't sit comfortably with me in terms of my role as a leader within the Bank of Ireland organisation. And I suppose I thought then about my two children uh, that you referenced, I. So I have a, a girl called Ashling, and I have a, a little boy called Dara. And when I thought about, you know, their ambitions and their career, I didn't want to... Um, you know, squander my leadership position within uh, the Bank of Ireland context um, and not try and influence the future that would be better for them. So I didn't want a future where my son Dara had an unfair advantage over his sister Ashling. Now equally, I didn't, I don't want my daughter Ashling to have an unfair advantage over my son Dara, uh, but I really am committed to and want equality for everybody uh, in terms of that piece. And I think that, you know, that personal story, I suppose, you know, I carry that, you know, in terms of my, my mindset and in my frame of reference when I'm working now in CRH um, and in terms of the work and, and the ambitions that we have as an organisation and as part of the Global Inclusion and Diversity Council. Uh, it is that pursuit of equality, as Stephen said, it's equality of opportunity um, uh, for everybody, regardless of their gender, their sexual orientation, their ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Just to do a very quick poll check. Uh, so does your firm have a DNI strategy? We're coming in at 80% yes, 20% no. Um, that's an interesting lead in, I think, Jane, to one of the topics that, that you and I were discussing around having a strategy and what organizations can do to promote that strategy and to make it effective. Um, it's not enough just to have a strategy, it needs to yield the results. So perhaps you could talk a little bit around the work that you've done and, and particularly around that recruitment piece. Yeah, no, thank you, Di. Um, um, Andrew, I, one of my very first bosses yeah, said to me very clearly, you do realise as a woman, you're going to have to work twice as hard as a man to be seen as half as good. So I, I was told what the system, what it, what it was like at the time. Um, I think things have moved moving on from there. Um, I, I would like to echo what's been said earlier. I think it, this is not a zero sum game. Companies benefit, staff are more engaged and people have each other's back in an inclusive and diverse culture, um, which makes them just nicer places to work. Um, it's all, it is, this is about leveling up. It's about creating a level playing field and trust where people feel that they belong 
Um, and this is going to become more and more important um, as younger people come into the workforce. They are definitely looking for working for diverse companies. Um, it's really important that this is led by the CEO. It has to be led at the top. It might start um, more at grassroots with employee research groups, but it has to be led by the top down and it has to be integral into in the corporate purpose, um, values and strategy. Um, it's really important for companies as well to take their context. So um, it's not like it's not a one size fits all. We're all aiming for the same the same end goal, but it, it's really important to get the data to find out um, and ask why why your company isn't as diverse and inclusive as it, as it could be, what the blockers are. Um, one, one of the big law companies looked and they, they assumed that the reason that they didn't have as many female partners was because they, the women were leaving. Actually, they find out more men were leaving, but actually it's the women were not being promoted up. So they just, so you need to know actually the reasons in order to be able to then see what the solution is for you. Um, so um, once you've, you've got your, um, your data, then start to set targets. All businesses run with targets and goals. So um, it's, it, it makes sense to do the same for diversity. And then create accountability by linking the performance of those to people's, to, to managers pay, to the CEO's pay and to managers pay. Um, and in terms of the, um, the recruitment side specifically, it's really important to, to have really strong succession planning to know where, where you're, what, um, what you're going to need. And in terms of competences, um, as well as uh, and characteristics, as well as, as skills. Um, it takes longer to recruit women and minority people from minority groups than it does to um, recruit white, white men. Um, so you, you need to be able to give yourself an advantage and, and, um, and know what you've got, what your requirements are going to be. Also look at the, your, at the success criteria for the hires. Don't, don't focus on um, time to recruit and uh, cost of recruiting. Think about the quality of the candidates that you're getting and how long that they're staying. Uh, because if you have higher turnover, because people aren't fitting in, or you then you then it's going to cost you more anyway. So it's a short term thing to think about the cost of um, of the hire. Um, the focus to start with, if you have got a diversity issue, is to think look at your senior team. That's because that's extremely visible, and also diverse um, leaders tend to recruit diverse candidates. So you will start to get um, sort of a ripple effect coming through. Think about your policies. And I completely agree with Andrew that these should be available to all. These should not be um, to, towards the minority group within work. Um, one of the really, really important um, factors um, in attracting and keeping talent is, is flexibility. Zurich Insurance ran, um, uh, they changed their, um, their job adverts by adding six, changing six words to make them more gender neutral, but also made 
all roles that could be flexible. They increased their number of um, applications for the job, their jobs by 50% for men and women. Um, and we were able to um, increase the number of women going into senior roles by more than a third. Um, so it shows and that if you, you do these things and it's, they should be gender or ethnicity, you know, diverse um, characteristics neutral. Um, so they can become the thing to do. BHP has also done some amazing things with, with their mining, you know, mining companies in terms of flexibility. Um, support the manager, support your managers, management cohorts, peer support, peer challenge is really, really, is, is proved to be helpful. And also coaching managers, hiring managers through the, the coaching, uh, through the recruitment process. Um, and again, it's also been mentioned, broaden your, your, where you search for talent. Um, you need to get as broad as possible so that you can really attract the best talent um, and focus on just a few key criteria. A lot of um, hiring managers will create a very long list of things that they need. Well, actually, you know, it, they, I would challenge whether or not they need so much. The more criteria you add, the smaller your, your talent pool is going to be and you're maybe not actually going to focus on the things that are really important. Um, so you know, think about your, your universities, think about apprenticeships. There's some, some companies now are looking at a, your apprenticeships and, and finding that that's been more successful in terms of the people they, they get to stay than graduation. Um, I chose not to go to university. I chose to join a company and then to study and do professional qualifications. So, um, you know, I wouldn't have joined a grant scheme, but um, I sort of created my own apprenticeship. Um, think about returners as well, people who are experienced coming in, and again, male or female. Um, then just to finish off, um, CVs, think about how, you, how you're filtering. CVs have got the strongest source of bias and the weakest predictors of job performance, as in name, age, the name of previous employers, place of education, years of experience. So focus on the things that will be predictive in terms of how people will perform. Um, so that's been found through research to be um, a, a relevant uh, general um, cognitive test, integrity test, and then structured interviews. So structured interviews, look at the scorecard, the criteria you need, and then set a set, set of questions that everybody is asked in the same order. And also then you have diverse recruitment panels rather than it's just down to one individual making the decision. And when you've done all that, make sure you're highly visible because that was, Steve mentioned the virtuous circle, then you'll, that will be your employer brand and you will start to you know, attract the sort of diverse talent um, that your company needs. Great, thank you, Jane. And I think some really, really tangible advice and, and some actions and, and something you said that really really resonates with me and, and we see sort of across the industry this needs to be intentional and it needs to be succession planning based often when you open a job wreck the pressure is always on already to fill that role quickly um, and those quick decisions is when you can often just replace like for like I think to use some of your tips but in an accession 
planning mode so that you don't have a gun against your head in terms of trying to fill a gap because somebody has resigned or someone has moved on it's that it's that pre-work I agree with you completely Um, sorry one of some of the most successful companies in doing this they create a bench they they go out they find people that they think so they haven't got a job for them now but they introduce them to the culture they invite them to you know meetings and you know town hall not town hall meetings but events that they have and then they know they've got people that they can go to when they have a role absolutely um Stephen before I come to you I'm just going to put up this the second Elaine if we can put up the second poll question so stats say that 80 percent of you feel that your company has a a DNI strategy which is great I guess the slightly more controversial question if you could put again answers yes or no, do you think that it's effective and yielding the required results? So, um, Elaine, if you can put that up on screen again to the right hand side of people's screens next to Q and A, there should be that poll option. Stephen, perhaps while we're we're also waiting for people to fill that in, I can pass to you just in terms of some of the strategies that you've seen be successful. Um, social mobility you talked a little bit about your sort of your personal experiences there but what else would you add to, to some of the the advice that Jane gave thanks Di. so yeah I mean obviously I, I would echo what, what Jane says in terms of um, having strategies that are relevant and authentic to, to the organization and we'll be interested to see what the um, what the feedback on the on the poll is because if people feel that their their strategy isn't working that may well be one of the reasons because it's a strategy which isn't specific enough to the organization not specific enough to to the environment they're in to the problem and if you don't know the problems you want to solve how they relate to your organization what you can do about them what kind of impact you want to achieve then you won't have the kind of impact that you might hope because you don't really know what impacts you were looking for in the first place so um in terms of um strategies and social mobility i'll give you an example of something that um, that i worked on a few years ago so when i was at pwc uh, about five years ago um i was really quite frustrated that although they were doing quite well on diversity and inclusion more broadly they weren't doing enough from my perspective on social inclusion um and i thought um a big op- a big organization like pwc really could and should do more to support the development of people from a range of backgrounds so what I developed was a strategy that, that, that incorporated a lot of the things that, that Jane was talking about. So it covered uh, recruitment because obviously how people come into the organization is really important. But that doesn't just include permanent recruitment. Who gets work experience opportunities? You know, do they come through friends and families and networks or do they come you know, through a genuinely meritocratic route? Uh, are they paid work experience opportunities? Because we know that unpaid work experience opportunities uh, are really hard for people who don't have the means to support themselves, say for travel or or for subsistence. So, um, and recruitment processes are really important. Jane touched on that a little bit there. If you're an organization that has a huge volume of applicants, and at the time PwC in the UK had 100,000 applications a year, you've got to have processes that are fair. Uh, um, So doing things like uh, it might be name blind CVs, it might be getting rid of CVs completely and having some kind of testing, uh, which is just a more level playing field. And that just helps if you can broaden your roots in and try and simplify and um, make fairer those um, those entry processes, then you get a more diverse set of people coming in. Clearly, of course, you get to the interview stage and you have to make sure that the people doing interviews um, 
have received the relevant training and support so that they can actually finish the recruitment process in a fair way. But that's a hugely important part of the story. But then also progression is, is really important. So not just about getting in, but getting on. And that relates to a whole bunch of things that, that Jane said as well. So, you know, visible leadership that you can relate to. Um, strategies that support your, your development, having stats that, to show how people from different backgrounds get on, making sure people get relevant training, mentoring, support if they, if they need more of that. That's a really important part of the story too. But the third part is around outreach. So the work you might do with broader communities because some of that will flow through into your recruitment pipeline, but some of it will have broader, um, broader social and economic events that don't uh, impacts that don't come back and uh, directly support your, your organization. But that's a really important thing to do as well, because it's really important to break down barriers. People from all different kinds of backgrounds may not see your organization as somewhere that they could work. They wouldn't see themselves there. They think you don't want someone like me because of whatever reason you then want to uh, to finish that sentence. And actually, you can break those barriers down by going and doing doing events with uh, with schools or with different kinds of beneficiary groups to show people, well, actually, by and large, we are fairly normal and we are like you. And actually, th 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 there isn't such a big hurdle here. We'd really like to have someone like you come and join our organization. That can make a huge difference. And then the final strand is around advocacy. And that's really important both internally and ex externally, particularly if you work in an organization where you want to change the mix of people who work there. You want to make people see that actually not everyone's like you and that's and, and that's a good thing. So if you take social mobility at PwC in the UK, PwC is overweighted with people who've had privileges, who've been to say private schools. Um, but so doing something to help people, people see that actually something like social inclusion affects a whole range of different demographic groups. We did we did videos every month, a different person from around the firm talking about their story, talking about how they came into to, to the firm and then a different ask for people every month. And it could just be as simple as, you know, go and talk to someone you know, because it's those little microaggressions that people see on a day to day basis that make such a huge difference to people's working lives and whether they want to stay. And then externally, as I say, it's about breaking down some of those barriers and actually showing people, uh, you know, if, if, wherever they might be, that we do things differently as an organization. We want to be an inclusive, holistic, or diverse organization. And if you can do that, as we've mentioned before, there should be a whole range of benefits in terms of people staying when they're within the organization, feeling proud to work there, being more productive, um, lower, you know, uh, lower attrition, so lower recruitment costs, and just being overall a more attractive and more successful place to work. Great, thank you, Stephen. Um, just to do a quick check on our poll, um, thank you to those for responding. So 43% think yes, the DNI strategy is successful and effective. 46% say somewhat, uh, and 11% say no at the moment. Um, interesting stats. So Andrew, if I can turn to you perhaps, um, in terms of, I guess, twofold, how do we, what advice can we give people to make those strategies effective? And, and what are the things that you would, you would ask people to kind of take away from this panel in terms of turning up at work tomorrow morning and going, right, I am now going to suggest X. Perhaps you can give us your view. Sure, uh, Di, of course. Um... So look, in terms of um, the strategies that organizations follow to be effective in terms of inclusion and diversity, 
as I think about it, I think about it under sort of four different pillars and maybe just to go through each of those four and just give you a quick example of a practical takeaway as to what people might be able to do under each of those. Um, critical, one of the, you know, and I think Jane referenced it earlier, it's really critical that the organizations have uh, an unequivocal commitment to IMD, okay? And that can come in a number of different guises. It can be a chief executive pledge, it can be setting explicit targets. Um, I'll give an example of Bank of Ireland a number of years ago, set a target that by 2021, so by this year, uh, appointments at the senior or executive leadership would be at uh, a 50, on a 50-50 basis. And the organization went further and actually published its record or its track record in terms of achieving that ambition and that target in its annual report. So there was no hiding place in relation to it. So, uh, you know, very much sort of setting out that uh, explicit target. But it goes beyond that as well in terms of, you know, again, challenging um, organizations to challenge themselves in terms of all of their internal communication, external communication. Uh, again, a great example maybe is in the Bank of Ireland context where they had a TV ad for mortgages. And for the first time recently, you know, one of the little vignettes in the TV ad was um, uh, two ladies who were clearly in, in, a, in a relationship who were looking to achieve and buy their dream home and, and Bank of Ireland would be there for them. So bringing kind of elements of IMD into TV advertising and other communication channels is, uh, is really important. A second maybe objective of the strategy is very much about creating uh, an inclusive culture and employee experience. Uh, and there's probably a couple of things here. P employees and colleagues, they experience the culture of the organization principally among their own team. And so it's really important in that context that the managers of people, the leaders of people, you know, are as good as, as they can be in terms of creating an inclusive environment. Uh, so of course, there needs to be investment in things like unconscious bias training, uh, inclusive leadership training, uh, where I work now in CRH, uh, across the globe, everybody at sort of a, a senior people leaders are all going to be, have mandate, mandatory inclusive leadership uh, training this year uh, to, to raise the standard, raise the expectations, uh, and you know, to help people to actually become better uh, uh, inclusive leaders in their own particular teams. You know, and I think that's something that, that's really important. Uh, employee resource groups, very important to support those, advocate for them and create the space and really empower uh, employee resource groups. My own experience is that they should be cast wide across the various dimensions of, of uh, IMD. So not just gender, but also LGBT, accessibility, social mobility, as uh, Stephen has referenced. And what's extraordinary is that that will broaden the net and enable colleagues from all uh, different perspectives to come forward and become real leaders in terms of that dimension of IND, but actually stronger leaders within the organization more generally. A very practical thing, if people wanted to do something immediately, Friday of this week is World Multicultural Day, okay? And so there's a great opportunity to celebrate uh, ethnic diversity within your organizations, within your teams. Within the CRH context, uh, we're going to be publishing our uh, multicultural recipe book on Friday. So about 20 colleagues from around the globe uh, have submitted um, their recipes for, you know, something from their own uh, home country, along with, you know, photography and stories about, you know, it was Granny's favourite recipe for this or that. And that's going to be published on Friday. So again, there are lots of things that you can do this week, uh, even on Friday, to try and deal with some of that. Two other areas. Um, one is around, uh, from a strategic perspective, is to obviously to increase the workforce diversity. And I know Jane covered an awful lot of very um, practical um, uh, ideas in this earlier around both recruitment and around promotion. And one of the things that you said really resonated with me, which is this idea about investing in the talent. So it's one thing to attract people in, but then you have to help people 
to be successful within your organization and to achieve leadership. Um, and, you know, there are lots of organizations out there. Uh, we partnered with an organization called Woman Up to develop a bespoke training for, uh, for early to career um, uh, female managers. And then that got broadened into uh, or, um, managers from an ethnic diverse uh, background. And the last area, which again goes to targets, is about being very clear on the accountability uh, for IND. So again, if I take a CRH example, within CRH, people get a, a variable pay. A part of it is linked to the performance of the company and part of it is linked to personal performance. This year, for all colleagues at senior vice president and above, but right across the globe, 25% of their personal performance is explicitly linked to IND. So from an accountability perspective, it's really critical that that's, that that's embedded. So overall, I would say I just encourage people to get going. You know, start small, start doing some initiatives, taking some events, get going on the strategy. The pace at which organizations can move at is, can be quite staggering. I would say in the Bank of Ireland context, uh, it went from sort of laggard to leader in that sector in the space of about two to three years. So, you know, just by way of encouragement to everybody who's uh, listening into the call today. Lovely. Thank you, Andrew. And I think just picking up on a couple of things you said there and also something that Jane, you mentioned earlier about metrics. And we've we've had a question in from someone in the in the audience, which is less on gender diversity, albeit that that's obviously a part of it. But other measures and data points. A couple of you have mentioned metrics. You've talked about Multicultural Day on Friday. And obviously an element of this is down to self-ID. An element of down to this is, is if you want metrics and targets, you need the data as a baseline. So I guess we're gonna open it conscious. We've only got a couple of minutes left to, to both Jane and Stephen to say, any hints and tips on initiatives or programs that help gather those metrics to make this a tangible targeted initiative. Well, Jane, you're nodding. Go. I'm going to come to you first. <laughs> so, um, so really, I mean, the most of this data, as you said, it's, it's, it's given voluntarily. So the really important thing is to explain why it's going to be needed so that it's going to be used to help the, the business improve its diversity um, and by, by and, and, and having maybe the CEO say look please we need this data so we know where we are so we can learn where the barriers are and then we can make um, your inroad good inroads and that that has worked that just you know it can can get uh, response rates up quite high and then then that has to be fed back though that has the the, the CEO then has to be very transparent about where there are gaps, not don't try and cover it up and say, and talk about the progress. And then the more people see that happening, the more likely they are to, um, to give their data, but also ca capture it at recruitment level as well, applicants, and look at your application processes as well, where people are dropping out from different minorities. Lovely, thank you, Jane. Um, and I'm conscious we've got one minute left. Stephen, I'm going to come to you just in terms of any last thoughts on, on indeed any of the topics that we've talked about today, but something just to leave our audience with. So, so, so I'll just give you a very quick addition to what, to what Jane has said. I mean, educate and inform, hugely important. Senior leadership, hugely important. In terms of metrics, most of them, most of them are self-reported. From a social inclusion point of view, it's not as straightforward, but... Um, 
parental occupation at age 14 is the single biggest. Um, if you're only going to do one indicator, do that. But just know where you're starting from. You know, it doesn't matter where you want to get to. You have to know where you're starting from and build from there. Lovely. Thank you. And just to bring this to a close, obviously a huge thank you to our panel. You've shared with us both personal conviction and commitment, but also some, some very tangible steps that hopefully are, the people listening can take forward. Um, and a thank you to the audience. The fact that we have so many people dialed into a session like this, I think shows that this industry is ready to, to really take this forward and make a difference. So we will bring the session to a close there. Thank you very much and enjoy the rest of the conference.